Hi everybody, JP here. You know, after we released our first episode in the Families and Neurosurgery series last week in what was supposed to be just a teaser or preview for the series, we heard from so many of you listeners and had such a positive response with people who were really invested and interested and excited to hear where this series is going to take us, that we decided to give the people what they want. So for the next few weeks leading up to the ANS meeting in Orlando, where we're going to be seeing lots of you and talking to lots more people and recording some regular episodes in person, we're going to press on with the Families and Neurosurgery mini-series and keep bringing you this content that our listeners want to hear. So without further ado, we'll continue on today with another episode in the Families and Neurosurgery series. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, we are delighted to be joined by a podcast favorite, Anand Virvagu. You may remember him from his episode on social media back in our early days. I think it was episode 13. And uh, Anand is back with us today. Anand, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's great to be here with all of you. Yeah, so on this episode, we want to continue our discussion about neurosurgery families. This this environment is so rich. And um, I think about all the things that relate to our personal lives, even though we're so invested in our professional lives. And so I want to just reintroduce our listenership, if you will, to Anand. Anand spent time with us in Miami briefly as sort of like a fellow where he hung out with us and got to see how we do things. But he went back to Stanford and he started his career and he's been doing amazing things, going to Africa, doing robotic surgery, doing all kinds of cool things. So now tell us a little bit just so we can understand about what your professional life is like. Yeah, I, I practice at Stanford University, so I'm in an academic practice. I have the real honor of being able to train residents, be in a multidisciplinary environment. And my surgical subspecialty is spine surgery. And I um, try to focus on minimally invasive technology-enabled opportunities for patients and um, try to push the envelope when it comes to thinking about what spine surgery is going to look like in the next five to 15 years and try and help us get there. And so I focus really on on that from a clinical perspective. And my, and my research perspective is focused on developing evidence for evidence-based guidelines using large national databases. Think about applying machine learning or artificial intelligence and neural networks to really large data sets. We're looking at maybe half a million or 750,000 ACDF patients. What can we learn from knowing about preoperative, intraoperative, and postoperative course of these patients? And what knowledge and wisdom can we gain from that in order to best protect our patients as they go through a surgery in the future? So that's that's where my world is. And, you know, in Silicon Valley, we have an opportunity to be close to uh, ground stage um, efforts, both in medical technology, focused on hardware, but then also software applications. And so um, I've really enjoyed it so far. I'm about five, nearly six years out of uh, uh, fellowship training, and it's been a, a great ride so far. Yeah, so it's interesting. So let me just recap for our listeners. So you have your day job as a neurosurgeon at Stanford, 
you do that, but you also do high level stuff. So it's not just cookie cutter. It's not just random surgeries that everybody's been doing for the last 30 years. So there's a little bit of stress there, right? You do research and you do multiple kinds of research. And at Stanford, we know that, that happens at a very high level. You travel to Africa to, to do philanthropy, right? And I imagine you're probably involved in a bunch of startups and writing books and stuff like that. So you're a really busy guy. Now, if I remember correctly, your wife works for Google. That's, that's right. right. Okay. Yep. So she's got a pretty interesting and demanding job as well, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And you have two children that were born <clears throat> in the first three years of being an attendant. Yes, right? that is correct. Okay. So now I know that that sounds typical, right? But the reality is that I want to unpack what that's really like because here you are, you know, being a resident is one thing, but as an attending, there's a lot of pressure and you come home and then you're like up all night with the baby and then you got to go do surgery the next day. So tell us what it's like trying to juggle all of this, the personal and the family. Yeah, I think it's really important to empower our residents as they come out of training to understand this because it's the key to sustainability of our of our specialty and, and also, you know, ensuring good care for our patients going forward. I think the, the biggest realization is that the work never stops. You think that you're going to graduate residency and then all of a sudden things are going to be easier. And really what happens is you just get better at understanding how to deal with things and how to prioritize what needs to be done. Certainly you have more help in one sense. Uh, when you graduate, you have nurses that will support you and are a part of your team. You have an amazing resident team, at least where, where I get to practice. And, and so that, that helps tremendously. But then the question is, you know, how do you manage all of this and your personal life at the same time? I think, you know, rule number one is I have an incredible wife and, and, and an amazing partner, and she's able to um, really allow the intellectual space sometimes that I need to think about patients, to think about the surgery, plan the surgeries, take care of these patients. But then she's also um, incredible in making sure that I uh, am there for the kids and for the family too. And I think that that's rule number one, you know, uh, a, a partner who understands where you're coming from and is able to support you and you're able to support them, that makes for the right foundation. And then outside of that, it is really prioritizing what is important and what's not, because you'll be asked to do a thousand different things uh, when you graduate um, and, and you have to figure out what's, what's satisfying for you from a career perspective, from a, from a technical skill and clinical perspective, and then also from a family perspective. So honestly, I, I try to make sure that I keep my schedule as predictable as possible. I, um, I, I had a mentor in fellowship one time who might be here who told me, make sure you negotiate for two things, time and freedom. He's like, everything else will come. And, and those of you who don't know, that was, that was Dr. Wayne who taught me that. Um, and that's what I did. You know, I made sure that I had OR time, that I had clinic time, that I had the freedom to do the things that I wanted to do. So if, if in one month I really needed to focus on national neurosurgery leadership, build a, um, uh, a number of talks for a coding course or help run a coding course, I could do that and quickly switch back to a very busy clinical practice the month after. But that's the type of freedom that, that uh, I tried to integrate in, into my, my career. And that also is true for family. If I needed to slow down for a week or two, because of other things going on in the family, we can, um, and, and also integrate my family into my career. Most of my partners, uh, almost all of my resident uh, colleagues and, and my former chiefs, they all know my family. Wherever we go, whenever we go to meetings, my family travels with me. Um, and so it's in, in some ways uh, an integrated unit, and that helps tremendously. Now, it's interesting to hear you talk about how you plan for these periods where different facets of your life may take 
more or less of your attention, in particular, as you said at the end there, when you need extra time for your family. But importantly, as we discussed kind of setting up this conversation, you had both of your children in your early years as an attending. And I wonder if that was a deliberate decision in terms of the timing, if you and your wife talked about having kids as many people do during residency, or if this is just how life panned out for you. Yeah, great question. I mean, honestly, you know, um, it, it really is how life panned out because uh, we were young in our relationship towards the middle and end of our residency. And, and my wife and I got married um, at the end of my residency. And then shortly after that, we started a family together. So I generally, I actually tell residents um, that, you know, neurosurgery is a, a marathon and you have to figure out how to build in um, the milestones that are important to you and to your family. Uh, and if, if having children during residency is an option, then um, then do it because there are other things that may prevent you from having children in the future, biologic clocks, um, and, and you just never know what the future holds. And if you're ready to have kids during residency, do it. We just, uh, we had met um, until uh, the middle uh, of my residency and then we started our family once we were married. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I always get in trouble for saying the wrong thing, but I tell a lot of young folks nowadays, and it doesn't matter if you're male or female or whatever, you're non-binary, it doesn't make any difference. You know, your gametes are precious and, and, you know, freeze your sperm or eggs or whatever. You never know. Maybe you're going to need them for stem cells. Who, who, who the hell knows? But, but the timing thing is important because there's never a good time, right? There's never a good time. And so, so let me ask you about this phase. Like you got, you got, you said four and two year old, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So raising human babies is uniquely challenging, right? They are, they require constant attention. And if you don't, you'll be brought up by CPS or Child Protective Services, right? So you can't even have the option anymore of just like leaving the kids in the corner. Not that we would ever do that. But how do you do that? Your wife is working for Google. You're getting called in the middle of the night. You're going away for national talks and helping us with Washington Committee here at the spine section. Do you, do you have like a, you have family around? Do you have nannies? What is the strategy in the Viravagu household? Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. Well, you know, I think... You kind of divide um, uh, taking care of the family into two buckets, predictable child care and unpredictable child care needs. And so the predictable child care is that, you know, my wife has a full time job. And during that time, we need to have somebody around that can help us. So, um, you know, we have the good fortune of being able to have a nanny who's with us. It's sort of the same nanny that's been with my child for for ever since he was about one. And um, she's there five days a week. Um, and she's there, you know, roughly uh, early morning to early um, evening. Or ten hours or so, somewhere around there. Um, the the challenge is that you know, with work from home and during the pandemic, which essentially is a third of the time I've had children in my life, um, uh, has been challenging because it's very hard for my wife to get work done when you have two little ones running around who want to play with you. Um, and and so you know, we we have just had to to figure out how uh, to to uh, make sure that they are cared for, that they're learning, that they're engaged. Um, and, and so, you know, going back to school helped tremendously. Um, now, I will say that the, the key uh, to, to making our life possible, especially when I have to go in for an emergent case or I'm on call, is really having family support. You really n hit the nail on the head there. And, you know, luckily, um, my wife's parents live uh, very close by. They are there all the time. They're very dedicated grandparents. They have never said no uh, for, for anything. In fact, they're somehow prophylactic about it. Um, if I'm on call, they're just planning to be around. Do they have the same so, pagers as you? Like yeah. when, when you get 
page they get yeah, saved? Essentially, yes, because, you know, when I leave at 2 o'clock in the morning, I have to call my wife. My wife called my mother-in-law. So, you know, a lot of these people are keeping neurosurgeon hours, even though they're not in the hospital, honestly, you know. <laughs> Uh, and so, and every child is different, right? One of my, both of my children had a lot of trouble sleeping for the first year and a half of their lives. Um, and now they've come out of that and they sleep through the night and they're doing better. But, um, you know, I think that's the key is, is if you're going to have a, a travel schedule, if you're going to have a operative schedule that could be aggressive, like going into the middle of the night, long deformity, complex deformity cases, being on call, you know, just like, you know, Dr. Wayne, probably a lot of my patients are patients that have come uh, and been referred to me from other neurosurgeons. So it's already a level of complexity higher than what you normally have to deal with. And that may take longer than what a day allows you to finish. And, and so just being able to bridge those gaps has prevent burnout. And I think that having family around has really prevent burnout in our family. Otherwise, it would have, I think it would have been very difficult for me to be able to do things that I've done. It's interesting to consider these middle of the night scenarios that you talk about where you have to leave at a moment's notice, or as you were saying at the end there, where you have a case that goes so long, you're not back at an expected hour as, as someone with a more typical occupation may be. And obviously with your children as young as they are, the question I'd like to ask is what do they feel about when you're not present? What do they feel about when you have to leave? But they're probably not yet at an age of understanding. I'm sure that later in this series on neurosurgery and families, we'll talk with some neurosurgeons and Dr. Wang could even speak to what it's like to have kids who can begin to appreciate and begin to understand what's going on. But I wonder from your perspective, Anand, have you and your wife talked about or planned in any way what will you tell them? What, having not yet got to the age when they can start asking you the questions, have you thought about how you'll answer them eventually? Oh, yeah. You know, honestly, by the time they started talking, they understood. So um, they understood at least what I was telling them. So I would say that, you know, my youngest one is two. My eldest one is four. And, and my eldest one definitely understands where I'm going. And it's usually, uh, you know, dad had to go to the hospital to help somebody. And that's really it. That's all they need to know. And they know. Um, I think, you know, we are given the privilege of being able to save lives to make very big differences in people's lives. And, and um, when you communicate that, and I think that's the key, you know, is really to be sure that you're communicating um, what is happening and where you are and what you're doing. And they, and they, they can understand. So my four-year-old definitely understands. My two-year-old is beginning to understand. And he'll say things like, Dad, a hospital? You know, he gets it. He knows that he's been to doctor's appointments. And and both of them have been to doctor's appointments, so they know where I go and what I do. Um, and and I think it what what helps the family is just communicating. So even if I don't know when I'm going to be home, like for example, if we're doing a big case and I know I'm going to be home past like critical deadlines, like for example, dinner time and then bedtime. Just letting your family know that you're not going to be there for those two things at least allows them to plan. The, the, the most challenging part can be if you just don't tell them anything, you know, and you're like, I'm home when I'm home. And, and obviously, you don't know when your surgery is going to finish. And if you come home early, great. <clears throat> but if you tell them, hey, listen, I'm not going to be there for dinner, probably not going to be there for bedtime. They have a plan together that they can execute and take care of and make sure everything goes as well as it can. But if, if you're if you're a ghost, that's very hard for the family to plan around. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate for, for having a wife like Amy. And, uh, you know, obviously not everybody fits in that pattern of a traditional nuclear family where the, the husband is, is the neurosurgeon and the wife is, uh, is, is the mom and, and maybe doesn't have the same kind of job. And so I'm very fortunate because I've been able to rely upon that. And, and we've talked about that in this podcast before. 
But I think back to all my colleagues in residency, and I don't know how it is because I'm, I'm out 20 years plus now. And I'm thinking about like, I remember one of my co-residents was like, he had to have like a nanny call schedule. And it was like, okay, so how many nannies do you actually need to cover all the time? It's actually at least three because you have your day nanny like you do, right, Anand? And then you have somebody at night. But what about the weekends and someone's working every night of the week? Like it doesn't make any sense. You really need at least three. What if one gets sick or goes on vacation? So do you need four? It becomes this thing. It's almost like a residency schedule. And and you haven't – you've chosen not to do that. And can you tell me about maybe why? Like obviously you have the resources for it. Or maybe you don't trust the people to be there because if even if you have that coverage for 40, 50, 60 hours during the daylight hours, if your kids are up all night, you, you, the next day you could be exhausted, right? So how, like, how did you come to that realization? I know lots of folks that do have the nanny call schedule, yep. two, three, four nannies just for one or two children. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I would say that the first year and a half for, for when we had our first um, our first child was tough. I mean, I was exhausted. Uh, and we kind of thought it was the right to the, the sort of pat, the, the rite of passage, right? Like you needed to go through this. And, and the truth is I really understood my children a lot better, but it was hard. Um, it was very hard. Fast forward to present day, you know, again, the reason that I don't have to have a nanny call schedule is because I have very dedicated grandparents. Um, and they are essentially there 24 hours a day. If you don't have that or you're in a, you know, you, you live far away from them or, or, or they, you know, for other reasons are tied up or, or um, whatever the reason may be, then you absolutely have to have that, you know, and I think there's no other way around it. But, you know, if I'm operating on a Saturday and Sunday, I know my wife's not alone because I have two grandparents that are there that are able to support, take care of the kids, active, engaged. They grew up with the, with these two, you know, the two, my two sons grew up with the, these grandparents. And so they're very close. Uh, as a result, you know, they, they are able to function around the clock. Um, and, and which I am very grateful for. I could have never imagined. And I think that, you know, as you point out, I know many of my partners that have multiple au pairs because that allows you, you know, to have coverage in the morning, they go to school, then you can use that coverage in the evening, afternoons, on the weekends, whatever it might be. And multiple au pairs, two or three au pairs is not uncommon where, where we are or anywhere else where, you know, somebody's very busy and it's a two income household or what have you. Yeah. And I don't want to sound, I mean, some people listening to this might not get the concept and maybe they're single mothers or maybe they're from a from a single family home, or maybe they don't have the economic resources. It would be very easy for someone not to be listening to our podcast regularly say, these people are super spoiled because they're talking about having multiple pairs, right? But the reality is I think it reflects back to the core of this podcast, which is the importance of what we do and how dangerous it is if you are someone who cannot function on low sleep and you just, because you were up with your kid the next the next morning, you can't do a surgery and you hurt somebody, right? Like, I think I think that's another side message to this before people just judge us for saying, oh, you guys are super spoiled because you have the balanced family with all the resources and all that. So I just want to throw that piece in there by way of disclosure or disclaimer. I completely agree. I think, you know, people don't realize that before you step into a surgery, there's a tremendous amount of intellectual time spent understanding what we're about to do. And then the actual surgery is not a uh, physical, technical uh, exercise. It is oftentimes unpredictable. Every surgery is as different as every single person's face on this planet. And people don't necessarily realize that. And if you were having the surgery, the first question you ask your surgeon is, did you sleep well last night? You know, and I think that that's 
that's really important. And, and I feel very fortunate that, you know, my family it, it really does believe that and understands that. And, and that helps tremendously because, you know, if you're doing a big surgery the next day, you have to sleep in order to be on your A game. And I'm, you know, we often talk about on this show and I, I speak with my friends and my coworkers about, you know, relating to your family members. And for, for someone early in my career, each year that goes by, I at least tell myself that my parents understand what I do a little bit more or my brothers and sisters understand what I do a little bit more, even though I'm probably just deluding myself. But I, I hear fewer and fewer of the same questions over again. So I wonder if in the situation you're describing where the grandparents are so involved and so helpful and, and like you said, practically taking neurosurgical call themselves, have you noticed that it's improved the dynamic? Not, you know, we're talking about your kids and your relationship with your kids, but with the rest of the family, how everyone's kind of coming together. And, and do you think they appreciate more the work that you're doing and the life that you're keeping as they kind of keep that schedule with you? I do think so. Um, I do think that they do appreciate in more detail what it takes to do uh, what it is we do. I do think that, though, it is it is very hard to keep up with a neurosurgery schedule. Um, and you can see that, you know, the family gets tired and that's when, you know, we used to build in a lot of breaks, right? Before COVID, we would take a lot of vacations together because they were a part of conferences. We would be in Hawaii or we'd be in, you know, uh, Austin or wherever for, you know, the various different conferences. That break hasn't really existed for about a year and a half now. Um, and I think that that, uh, that makes everyone feel a lot more tired. And so, yes, there's a better understanding of what what our schedule is like and what the intellectual challenges are associated with the practice of neurosurgery. But at the same time, I can tell you that people are tired. You know, family is tired because it's not easy to do this with young kids. That being said, every few months, the kids mature and things get a little bit easier and maybe the challenges change, you know. Um, and as a result, I think the physical toll comes down quite a bit. And, and I think, you know, we are, we are just turning the curve there and, and everybody is starting to be able to sleep better and the, the kids are eating better. And, and I'm sure we'll have a new set of challenges one day, but it's all uh, part of being a parent. Well, Dr. Viravagu, it's been fantastic having you on again, and we are going to have you back for yet another episode. I think we were talking about recording one on whether we'll be replaced by robots, which is an area of passion of yours. Thank you for sharing some of your personal life. I hope this slice of life helps to encourage some of our listeners who may be going through these uh, difficult times uh, when they have young children and are trying to run a practice. Um, Good luck at Stanford. Your career's already taken off like a rocket. And I look forward to following it uh, from a distance. Thank you so much, both of you, for having me. It's, it's really great. And I think that these issues are very pertinent to the trainees coming out of neurosurgery now. And it's really an honor to be a part of it.